Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, I welcome back Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker, two-thirds of the Conspirituality podcast group. Now, their show has been following the phenomenon of QAnon well before there was any mainstream awareness of the conspiracy movement. And they've been reporting for nearly a year about the storm, the Q theory that Trump would be declared president, classified documents would be unlocked and released, and the deep state would be arrested to face military tribunals and public executions. So now that this prophecy has fizzled and many QAnon followers have been deplatformed, today we discuss what's next for the movement as some splinter off onto encrypted platforms and others second-guess the movement entirely. Now, Matthew, who himself has recovered from indoctrination in a cult, speaks specifically to how we can welcome back friends and family who may have gone down the Q rabbit hole. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Right, Matthew Remsky, Julian Walker, two-thirds of the valiant and mighty Conspirituality <laughs> crew. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to have a majority of you. It's great Thanks. to see you again, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And uh, Derek sends his regards. He's had a heavy work week, uh, but uh, he, he, I'm sure we'll channel some of him. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, boy, a lot has changed since we last spoke. Um, I believe we spoke in mid-September the last time. Mm. And, um, and I would say that, that the phenomenon of, of Q was really just entering the zeitgeist at that juncture. I mean, certainly there were plenty of folks following the story and journalists writing about it, but I, I think it's fair to say it had yet to completely permeate, permeate mainstream consciousness. Um, and, and it's pretty safe to say that at this juncture, you'd essentially need to be an ostrich um, with your head in the sand. Not yeah, it's to, not anonymous anymore, that's for sure. It's everywhere. Yeah, and I think people are, are more than aware uh, of the associated dangers of it. So there's a, a lot to excavate here. Um, and I, I'd love to prod at a couple of different sort of interrelated angles um, in this discussion. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to talk about QAnon without addressing some of the cultural and political impacts. And, and certainly um, those have come to the fore over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I hope to also get into some of the mental health dimensions um, of QAnon and, and try to identify 
some of the root causes that have kind of underwritten this mass psychological derangement. And hopefully you guys can help to shed a light on how we can welcome back um, some of the folks that have been red-pilled back into, into reality. Uh, and I hope that that, that will be the case. Um, so just to gird this discussion in, you know, some recent history, you know, obviously you guys have been extremely uh, uh, attentive in covering these sort of incessantly kind of shifting theories and foci uh, of QAnon from pedophilia rings and save the children to microchip vaccines and the effectuation of the new world order and all of the associated accompanying kind of prophecies associated with that. But it seems to me that as the election approached, and certainly in its aftermath, the collective fantasy really began to coalesce very tightly around stop the steal. Um, the, the claim, obviously, that Biden kind of won the election fraudulently. And this seemed to really tighten the relationship and the connection between President Trump and Q. Uh, now, I'm not aware of all of the the kind of dog whistles and lip service that, that the president had given to Q kind of prior to the election, but certainly in wake of losing the election, the agendas of QAnon and the president began to more directly align and tighten. And, and as he became what I would categorize slightly more desperate, you saw Q proponents in meetings in the Oval Office uh, folks like Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn and, and even our, our favorite pillow guy, um, uh, Mike Lindell, uh, I think, came to the right. Oval Office with a plan. Um, and the idea that Trump would eventually sort of prevail in the election really seemed to dovetail perfectly with the prophecy of mass arrests and these declassifying of documents and military tribunals and public executions and, and all of the kind of fever dreams associated with Q. So we, as we kind of plotted through December, as kind of the institutions of democracy traipsed along through safe harbor dates and uh, election or electoral college certification dates, there was a sort of parallel narrative that was kind of feverishly coalescing around Trump eventually prevailing. And, you know, these, these kind of lines in the sand kept pushing back, you know, as the prophecies began to sort of, that, that had been propagated by influencers and whatnot, continued to fail. And we were sort of headed to this, like, uh, climax, this culmination point uh, on January 6th. And, and obviously, you know, Trump, um, you know, through Twitter uh, and his other social platforms, you know, fostered a lot of excitement about people coming to the now infamous Save America rally um, on, on January 6th, which obviously, you know, culminated in, in the siege uh, on the Capitol with this very strange elixir of groups from, um, from militia groups like the Oath Keepers to kind of white supremacists to obviously uh, followers of Q. And 
the visual mascot, I guess I would call it, uh, of the siege on the Capitol became um, this gentleman, you know, Jake Angeli or, or Jake Chansley, uh, who is known as, as the QAnon shaman. And, and there he stood on the Senate dais, um, bare chested with a Viking cap. So, right. So, were you guys surprised that this, what had seemed like a largely a movement of digital warriors, had spilled into the analog uh, world uh, on January 6th? And uh, were the events of that day surprising for you? Or, or did you, on some level, foresee that this was sort of an ultimate outcome of this movement. I mean, I think you set it up really well by speaking about the coalescence of the political and the mythological timelines. And I think that served to be predictive. Uh, in some sense, I, I watched the events unfold that day in horror like everybody else. Um, but they did have kind of a sense to them uh, in that... Um, going on the analysis of people like Travis View and Julian Field and Jake Rokotansky at QAnon Anonymous, uh, they've been saying for the last year or so that this is a movement that could LARP itself into reality. And uh, that's a good framework, I think, for thinking about uh, Anjali or Chansley as you know a, a participant, but also uh, for thinking about not just the Oath Keepers, the militiamen, the swastika Nazis, but also um, you know, people like Mickey Willis and other influencers who show up and actually play a role in uh, emotional support, aiding and abetting the the storming of the Capitol, where there isn't quite this um, clear foresight and commitment to violence per se, but there's enough of an imagined spiritual warfare that must be undertaken that those threads sort of trend together and 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 what do they tie up in um a lot of photo opportunities a lot of videos streamed back to parlor that then end up implicating everybody who's there um and you know it's like as the as the moments ticked down because the sixth was just kind of like a a, a brick and mortar in real life coalescence of forces but you know the 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 rhetoric and the panic around the coming um, fulfillment or disillusionment of the prophecy uh, really escalated all the way up to you know noon on the twentieth, mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of extraordinary because we could see it happen in real time that uh, we watched a very large diverse group watch its prophecy fail, and we could do that by you know following them on Gab and Telegram, um, and so. Was it surprising? I I wouldn't say surprising, um, and uh, no, I, I I wouldn't say surprising. And I would also say that the fact that it didn't really um, combust in the way that, like, I, I don't know, want to make a joke, but like a proper revolution would combust. Mm. That isn't surprising either, because there's been so much digital warriorship and LARPery about this that when when 
you know, boots hit the ground and the rubber hits the road. It's, I don't know, there's a lot of performativity in that movement that isn't really about, uh, okay, how are we actually going to take power? There isn't really a vision for what happens once one has power. And so why would you really want to take it instead of just talking about taking it? Yeah, I would say too, uh, I had actually been surprised in the whole period from the election and from just before the election until we got to January 6th that nothing had happened yet. Right. You know, from everything that we were following and and especially for me following some of these people like Dr. Christiane Northrup um, who were just sort of nice, nice new agey folks who started endorsing militias, you know, sort of indirectly and with a wink and a nod, uh, saying that you should only listen, you should find out who your local sheriff is, so you can only listen to them and not be under the tyranny of the governors and that sort of thing. So, yeah, as per I'm, sovereign citizen logic, exactly, right? exactly. And I, w- I was, I was relieved that yeah. it wasn't worse. And I think that what's been interesting for me about the siege at the Capitol, first of all, I, I'm completely opposed to the term armed protesters. I think armed protesters dignifies something and makes it seem somehow legitimate or peaceful in a way that is just not true. I I think that these, I don't think it's a huge stress to say that there was a significant number in that group who I would call domestic terrorists who, who had, you know, the, the more distance we get from it, the more information we find out, the more it's clear that the people inside that building were under siege and were fearing for their lives. So I'm relieved it didn't, get any worse than that. Um, I believe we didn't have, you know, bombings or, or something of that nature. Yeah. One thing that you said, Matthew, that I found startling is that in the aftermath of the siege, the people that were actually involved in the siege itself at the Capitol went home and posted videos mm-hmm. <laughs> of <laughs> themselves. So, and I mean, in a way to almost to self-incriminate themselves, to assure yeah. on some level that they would be arrested. But there was something else that took primacy, which is kind of speaks to a lot of what I've heard you guys talk about which is uh, a little bit to do with the gamification of this movement, that, that there was so much status involved on social media of actually being there and storming the Capitol and taking a video of yourself, you know, sitting in Nancy Pelosi's chair or, or wherever you happen to be, that you would risk incriminating yourself because you were so... Uh, uh, connected to the idea of getting likes and comments and engagement on social media. And I believe that social media is such a big part of this Rubik's Cube. So I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit. Well, I'm, I mean, it's, it's not just that they, uh, you know, were preaching to their followers or showing off or gaining social capital within you know, the hell holes of parlor and gab, which doesn't really happen because they're just talking to each other. Um, it's that uh, their, their reality was so bifurcated that it almost seemed as though the posts back into those social networks would go into their own worlds that, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have to worry about end-to-end encryption or they didn't have to worry about, you know, um, that, that somehow John Mates at Parler 
uh, and Anthony Torba, or is that his name at Gab, that they had convinced them that these were private and secure um, almost countries, fantasy lands, mm-hmm. uh, in which none of the typical rules of data or you know the law apply. And, and I think it really speaks to the kind of parallel universe that, that is created by a fever dream like this. Um, and then the range of players also is so, um, so incredibly diverse. Like I'm thinking about, I still can't get over watching those film clips of uh, Dr. Simone Gold uh, with a megaphone standing in the rotunda in front of cops. Um, while people are in other spots of the building, like, you know, pushing back riot police or like rifling through the Senate desks. And she wants to give her speech about hydroxychloroquine, Mm -hmm. which she delivered on the steps of the Supreme Court. And it's like, and, and Mickey Willis is there for a similar reason. I would assume we don't really know, except that we, he, he is in that New York times clip. He's shown to be doing some B-roll of his own sort of reporting on, well, this is what this is what's happening now, and we got pepper sprayed and so on. And, you know, I'm assuming this is going to go into the next, um, you know, quote unquote documentary. And so we have this kind of like influencer parasite class as well that is, is not just uh, trying to enhance content within their echo chamber, but they're trying to go in and produce content against a stunning backdrop of civil unrest in order to further their message. And, you know, there's no reason to believe that, that most of those people either knew or, or would have anything to do with the flex cuff guy or, mm-hmm. you know, the guys who, who were, were packing heat. So it's so bizarre. And, 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 but the container for it is this is an alternate reality where rules don't apply to me, right? So flex, flex cuff guy and Simone Gold are operating in that same universe where it's like, you know, well, they can't touch me. I'm somewhere else. I wanted to to add here and sort of this question and the last question, Jeff, I had some thoughts. One is that the the further we got away from the election and and past those different landmark moments, right, where it was more and more like this is really happening, the more the stakes seemed like they got elevated, right? It's with each passing one, it's like, okay, and by the end, we're all in and this is it, right? And now we're storming the Capitol. And the, the other piece about that is I feel like there's there's a level of intoxication that is part of what you're referring to with the the buying into the prophecy, the alternate reality that they're living in. Some of it is gamification. Some of it, I think, is is kind of religious that this is the prophesied moment. We will prevail. We will take over the government. For sure. We will we will do what we need to do. And none of us are going to jail. Are you kidding? When the plan is revealed and everyone is exposed and all the indictments come down and the Democrats and the Hollywood pedophiles are all jailed, we'll be heroes. We will be the patriotic heroes of the new reclaimed America. So I think a lot of that social media stuff, too, is an expression of that. Of Like, there's no thought that this is going to incriminate me and I'll end up in jail while Biden starts his presidency, right? Yeah, they're recording a victory, actually. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's... Yeah, interesting. I, so and what, a ritual. They're recording a ritual too, just to come back to uh, Jacob Ansley for a moment, Chansley mm, for a moment, which is, mm. which is, you know, when he's when we see him in that clip from the New Yorker in the in the sort of upper balcony of the Senate doing his war chants and his oming and so on, um, 
you know, he he says that uh, in the interview with Alex Jones afterwards that he is raising the vibration of this very important seat of democracy so that so that he can sanctify it or bless it or switch it to the next the next D or whatever. Uh, and so there's also it's it's not only religious in the sense that. Um, people are enacting uh, or acting upon faith. It's also religious in the sense that it's making something transformational happen in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, and certainly I, I think you can say that this is one of the reasons why it's taken root in kind of evangelical communities, but also in, in New Age communities where there is a sense that there is something mystical happening on, on the other side of reason and empirical right. and what we can see. And, and, I, and I suppose there's also uh, one of the things that I've remarked uh, about the movement in general is its incessant, unflinching optimism mm-hmm. in some ways, which is, and I wonder if you could kind of unpack that because this kind of gets a little bit to the psychological ground conditions from which this movement sprouted where, you know, we're living in a tremendous amount of uncertainty. People are isolated. And in that uncertainty and isolation, one may naturally default to fear, which is a very pessimistic place to be. But one area to divert fear, one avenue to assuage fear is anger. And when you're angry, and you're motivated by something and you're in connection with community around that anger, that can actually feel quite optimistic. <laughs> and I, I wonder if you think that there is a psych, if that is a fair psychological diagnosis of what might be afoot. Can I just ask if by optimistic, you mean that, that they keep sort of revising the prophecy and saying, well, no, actually it's going to be this now that it hasn't worked out. Is that yeah, part of what it, you mean? it just never gives up, you know, and, and yeah. it doesn't seem to be, uh, yeah, it, it is, it seemed to be consistently fuels itself back up with energy. Um, it, it's even, as you said, in the waning moments of Trump's goodbye speech, you know, there were, 17 flags behind Trump wow. and there were still people right. <laughs> you counting know, the, to flags. the very last second <laughs> counting the flags. And I've even heard stuff since that, that, you know, he, that yeah. Trump is still the POTUS in exile and, and, and whatnot. So, um, well, I know Matthew has plenty to say about this because I think there's, there's a whole sort of cult research aspect here that, that I would be curious to hear about as well. I just want to say that, um, in psychological terms, I'm hearing perhaps in, along the lines of what you were suggesting, Jeff, a certain amount of repressing of the fear, a certain amount of not being able to deal with fear and therefore going to this other place of anger and, and action and optimism and, and, and uh, rebelliousness, right? Defiance, um, which then to me makes perfect sense because then you get into this domain where it's about sublimation, right? You're not actually dealing with your real feelings about the real world, you've created this other domain that you're driving that energy into. And no matter what happens in the real world, you've still got this other thing that you've become invested in now that is that is a sort of a metastasizing psychological defense would, would be a hunch, you know, following your line of reasoning. Yeah, I mean, and the 
the weight of it grows uh, in sunken costs. And I think the energy to push against it uh, has to become more muscular. And this is where I think it's really good to um, look at uh, the old research that gives us the term cognitive dissonance. I spoke about it a little bit on the last episode, but uh, it comes out of actually um, looking at uh, the failure of a prophecy made by a doomsday cult uh, in the States in the 1950s. Uh, a couple of social psychologists uh, led by uh, a guy named Festinger uh, published a book called Failure of Prophecy. Um, this cult had predicted that uh, the U.S. would be um, subsumed by a flood uh, in, on some December day in 1952 or something like that. And of course, the day came and went and nothing happened. And they did this field work uh, to look at how the um, cult members actually processed the failure of the prophecy. Now, um, all of these, uh, f- all of the, these, these um, tricks, these techniques that they observed, I think we can see in full play as both conspiritualists and, and QAnon people come to grips with what has happened. Uh, some will spiritualize the event or the non-event by saying that, well, you know, you thought that it was going to happen in real life, but really it's happening behind the scenes or on the subtle plane or in another dimension or something like that. Um, some will say that, uh, well, this yet again was a test of faith to separate the worthy from the unworthy. And so if you're holding the line and if you're still keeping the faith and, you know, you're really, your reward will be greater in heaven, right? Um, and then there might be uh, the notion that the, 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 the cult had the wrong information and that has to be reinterpreted. So there's human error. Um, and then there is the blaming of others, right? Like, um, you know, whether it's outside forces disrupted what was supposed to happen or outside forces misinterpreted what you were doing to begin with. And so they got your whole story wrong. Um, so we're even seeing that from some QAnon telegram channels now where people are saying, people are saying, oh, well, you know, people who thought that it was all going to uh, end on the 20th, they didn't know the real story. Uh-huh. Um, and so there's, it just goes, it goes on and on and on. And um, it can't really, it can't really have an off ramp um, unless, unless the person is offered security in uh, a real world relationship uh, and you know that might involve mending fences that they threw up or or building bridges that they burned down. So, so that's that's a really key thing that we want to start focusing on on the podcast as well is like how how do how do people um, how, how do they how how do we welcome them back? Yeah, and and I want to get get into that and um, and get your take on where we are with the movement so obviously in the in the wake of january 6th the a lot of the social media platforms um started deplatforming. obviously started with the president but i believe twitter went through seventy thousand q oriented yeah. accounts and and deplatformed that and and facebook followed suit and eventually youtube did the same and Obviously, that pushed a lot of folks onto some of the encrypted platforms that you've already mentioned, Telegram and, and Signal. And I wonder if 
you're seeing that deplatforming work and is that sort of splintering off of the kind of mainstream social platforms um, effective in starting to essentially wake people up out of this dream? And are you starting to see kind of defection or are you seeing further radicalization and militarization kind of on the fringes as sort of militia groups who are already kind of in those encrypted worlds are now meshing with the, the QAnon folks? Well, um, I can say that the people who do the deep data analysis on this, like do fantastic work and we, in the show notes, we can put some Twitter accounts to follow. Um, and from my study of it, I just filed a feature on the the rise and fall of Parler. So I've gotten close to that world a little bit. Um, I, I think I think the jury will be out for a while with regard to what happens to overall numbers of interest. Um, Telegram groups are booming. Gab is booming again. Parler, of course, is offline. It still has its homepage up. Um, but the the analysts that I interviewed for this uh, upcoming article um, said a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, those who were corralled towards Parler uh, and Gab and Telegram from Facebook and Twitter, not because they were specifically banned, but because their charismatic influencers, maybe they were banned or they whipped up some kind of fear of, um, you know, uh, of, of censorship. And, and so they, so they tried to make themselves at home at parlor that those late adopters, they walked into uh, a kind of a bunch of info op website streams and a very inhospitable place with an ugly interface if they went to, to parlor. And uh, there was very poor uptake actually. Um, and so amongst sort of the casual uh, QAnon digital soldiers who don't have overlapping interests or connections with white nationalist groups or militias, um, that kind of casual um, uh, usage, let's say, uh, is probably not stable. That's what's been destabilized. Uh, amongst people who um, were absolutely committed to QAnon as a grift uh, because they were influencers themselves, um, you know, lay people who were completely committed to mythology in a religious way and they couldn't go back to Facebook or Twitter, um, they, they, will probably, they will probably have to uh, stay and try to continue to make their way. But the most disturbing thing that's happening is that uh, as the prophecy of QAnon has failed, we're getting reports now that uh, in um, services like Telegram that, uh, you know, neo-Nazi groups are actively trying to recruit disillusioned QAnons uh, because, you know, they're able to now say, hey, your prophet was false. Your real problem is the Jews. Uh, and this is what we're going to do. And this is how to arm yourself. So, so there is a lot of fear amongst radicalization experts that um, the further isolation of at least small portions of these movements 
uh, will lead to, to, to more extremism. But they always frame what will emerge out of this as stochastic terrorism, uh, which is far less organized than, you know, um, than, than, than the types that we, we think of more often. So uh, lone wolf attacks, um, vague calls to vigilante justice that may or may not play out. Uh, it's very disorganized and chaotic. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of an overview, but we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll give some, some accounts to follow in the show notes. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to to track the layers, right? And and you were saying before, Matthew, and looking at the storming of the Capitol as as an example of this kind of you know uh, uh, almost like a, a music festival gathering of the tribes of all of these of these folks um, that there are so many different types of people, and I think you know thinking about the militias and the neo Nazis and the and the the diehard constitutionalist kind of patriots. And just the run-of-the-mill Republicans, and then the people that we've been looking at, who who are you know the pastel Q people and the the New Agers, right. uh, how how all of that plays out in terms of like, do we really think that a lot of the New Age yogis, people in the wellness space who got red pilled, are going to end up becoming you know radicalized into some sort of militant action? <laughs> Yeah. Well, it really depends. I mean, let's just take a couple of examples. I mean, Mickey Willis is a great uh, figure to think about because uh, he got close enough to the siege where he's actually, it looks like he's about to breach the door. He says that he wasn't on Facebook, but then he did get close enough to the action that when he went back to give his speech about how it was a beautiful thing to see the human organism rise up and you know try to assert itself again, that... Um, uh, he, within a couple of days, he's deleting his Facebook. Yeah. Uh, now we don't know what that means. We don't know whether he got a knock on the door from the FBI, um, or whether he got some really good legal advice to stop commenting on Facebook about the wonderful time that you had at the Capitol. Um, well, and he but, was doing both, right? He was commenting about how amazing it was. And then he was also saying, I was purely there as an, as an interested journalist. I, I did right, nothing wrong. Right. So, so, so he loses, he, he, he takes himself off of Facebook. We don't know if his account was deleted or whether he deleted it. Mm -hmm. But in any case, he's lost his sort of mainstream uh, hall pass, right? Um, but when I think about um, people like... Uh, you know, Sayer G, who runs uh, Green Med Info, and Kelly Brogan, his partner, uh, they now Kelly Brogan wouldn't use uh, QAnon hashtags or, or language, but Sayer G would, uh, and uh, then kind of deny that he was doing it, but not really denounce QAnon. Uh, but he kept his Facebook account. He he said, "Join us on on Telegram. Join us on MeWe." But those accounts are still open. Uh, and Instagram is still working for him. And so I think we also have a class of influencers who, for one reason or another, whether they believed in the ideology, whether they found it attractive, or whether they, they found that, that opportunistically it drove engagement for them because it was transgressive and it, it fit into their conspiritual, conspirituality profiles, um, that, that they, they played chicken with the moderators uh, and now that that's a dead end, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that language sort of um, come back, come back from the edge a little bit mm -hmm. and turn towards, you know, uh, vaccines proper uh, and turn more towards back towards, um, you know, I don't know, worries about immunity passports or 
or whatever the the next sort of sure. biomedical panic will be, right? And that's so, a really important point too, Matthew. That that several of the people that we cover uh, who are in the wellness space who already have online business models, their exposure has gone through the roof as a right. result of riding on the coattails of this thing. Right. And you've got to think that they're gonna they're gonna keep maneuvering to to figure out how to still be able to capitalize on that. Right. Yeah. I mean, or does it just migrate back to veggie pakora or, well, or whatever? See, no, this is the thing. I, I, I very strongly believe that it can't, it can't actually deescalate back to uh, turmeric and green juices because um, the, the tolerance level, see, mm-hmm. see, I feel bad for uh, the, the people who didn't really know what they were getting into and they yeah. didn't really, and they didn't really, um, Maybe they didn't really buy into it um, because the ludic loop or the dopamine sort of response of QAnon as an addictive mechanism uh, driving engagement was so incredibly powerful mm. that I think it it really raised the tolerance level of their followers with regard to uh, what they're going to be attracted to in terms of transgression. And you're so you're talking about desensitization, aren't I'm you? I'm talking about desensitization. Yeah. Exactly. So once you are, once, once you have gone from green juices to, I really want to stop pedophilia to, I'm going to save the mole children. What are you going to drop back down to and keep your audience with? Uh, yeah. And so, and that's, so that's not even a function of ideology. It's not a function of psychology either. It's a function of the algorithm driving the influencer to be more and more extreme in their content uh, yeah. in this re- in this way that just doesn't serve anybody, including them. And that's what's so tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, I think that the, the, and this over it's, it also intersects with the fact that the charismatic influencer always has to get, have something more always has to, it doesn't matter what it is, the content mm. and the boundaries of the content mm. always have to like be pushed outward and more sort of externalized in order for them to retain their shine and their radiance in competition with the next guy who's doing the same thing. Mm. And, and in yeah. a way, that's part of why this, why our subculture was so vulnerable to this is that this was the perfect, the perfect next big thing that was going to yes. be so significant and enlightening and in fact, I would argue that that people who were I, I think this is David Avocado Wolf's uh, issue, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never I haven't interviewed him. I'm not a psychologist, but I can imagine that it got boring talking about chocolate as though it was going to save the world. And so when you could talk about something that was going to save the world mm-hmm. for reals, then that's really intoxicating. Yeah. I mean, this is what I term the biggest non-consensual psychological experiment in the world. Yeah, absolutely. That we're all undergoing, you know, without really knowing it, which is that we are, have become addicted literally to the, the neural rewards that are associated with social media. And that we all know now, you know, how sensationalist, hyperbolized uh, information with no basis in fact can spread six times faster or whatever on the internet than, than anything that is right. true. And so when you are posting that information and you're seeing the likes and engagement come in and you're 
followers have gone from 5,000 to 100,000 and what normally got five comments gets hundreds and hundreds of comments, that is opening up re neural rewards that then that that give you a sense not just of, uh, of you know, dopamine driven satisfaction, but also that behavior is reinforced. So you're almost totally uh, uh, you're almost compelled to become more and more um, sensationalist and extreme, you know, with your posting. And, and especially and if you is, add money yeah. then on top of that, right? Yeah. Financially if you're, rewarded yeah. as well. True. If you're, if you are monetizing it on YouTube or if you're an influencer that is, you know, getting sponsorship deals based on, you know, their reach on, on Instagram, um, it, it is also tied into a monetization model. That's absolutely true. There's um, another yeah. way I think of, oh yeah, there's a, there's another sort of, uh, archetype of, um, I don't know how, how to describe this where, uh, the person has escalated their rhetoric and their content in terms of its inflammation to a certain point, but then they can pivot and become transcendental and that can work too. And I think that's what we're going to see with somebody like Christiane Northrup, who is going to, uh, or it seems like uh, since the 19th or 20th, uh, has uh, dropped uh, any sort of pretense that what she's talking about is, you know, real material revolution or resistance to this program or that program. Uh, and, you know, she's speaking more about the channelers that she's talking, to, uh, talking about and how, you know, it's all about ascension and about how, you know, um, the, the events are really metaphoric for something that's happening on an etheric plane. And so, and she's somebody who can rock that too, right? Because she can um, switch gears and she doesn't have to be like Sasha Stone, who, you know, is always rallying the troops. She can actually go into her garden and play her harp. And that mm -hmm. will be very soothing to her following as well. So I think there's a number of ways that yeah. uh, these folks can walk themselves back from the edge, but not really take responsibility for any of their, any of their aiding and, and abetting. And certainly not, you know, say, oh, you know, well, maybe I, maybe I stepped out of my lane by thinking that I knew anything about epidemiology. Yeah. Um, what is your sense of, um, of the movement now that kind of its leader has been decapitated, if you will, or dethroned. It, does the absence of, of Trump uh, throw water uh, on the on the fire, or do we just you know now see kind of heirs apparent in you know Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and other you know Congress people, Q, QAnon oriented Congress people? that are now in office, um, you know, do, does someone step into his role or is the, the popularity or the infectiousness of, um, of, of the cult completely separate from, from any influence Trump, you know, may not have at this juncture? I mean, uh, one of the guests that we had on early, uh, Steve Hassan's, uh, he's a, you know, old timey cult expert and his book is called The Cult of Trump. And, you know, he started to talk about QAnon in sort of old school 
cult terms. But the kicker with that is that, um, uh, you know, what was the relationship between between Q and Trump? Was Q kind of Trump's shadow? Um, we never really knew who they were. Now they've disappeared. They haven't posted since December 8th. Um, and uh, my answer for that was that uh, QAnon was functional as a leaderless movement because uh, the, the, the charisma that a leader would typically provide was actually provided by the gamification, by the, by the people themselves. Um, I don't think, so MAGA is parallel to that. You know, the, the QAnons used Trump symbolically for sure. Uh, but you know he 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 wasn't like Marjorie Taylor Greene. He wasn't like a prophet of 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 QAnon or or like yeah. a like an overt uh, um, you know proponent spokesperson yeah right spokesperson. So so the MAGA movement is is kind of parallel and utilizes QAnon. They use each other, um, and uh, yeah, I mean I don't I don't think uh, I don't think there's really any any replacement for somebody who was already absent. But I think that if there's something cultic in the momentum of the QAnon movement, it will come from that fact that uh, they, they, they were working together on something uh, in this alternative universe. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the weird thing to me is that QAnon essentially is this amalgamation of multiple conspiracy theories that have been, many of them around for a really long time, right? You've got the Freemasons, you've got the, the Jewish banking conspiracy, you've got the blood libel, um, you've got the reptilians that have been you know, pe- different people have been talking about for a few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow it all coalesced during the pandemic and ended up being focused on Trump. Uh, and, and I think part of the ways that that happened is that you have the the populism that brought Trump into power, then playing into that as well, that you can't trust the media at all. You can't trust the elites and Trump is going to drain the swamp and bring America back to its former glory. Uh and the same sort of thing amongst amongst people in our space, in the wellness space, who are vulnerable to it, is this sort of idea that you have to you have to find out the truth from from looking within. That you can't trust any. You can't like J.P. Sears says it all the time, right? Don't outsource your truth. Listen to your heart. That you can't trust experts. It's the same sort of thing, right? You can't trust government institutions because they're all in on some kind of plot to take away our connection to spirit or our connection to the, the great fatherland of the, of the United States, you know, in some patriotic religious sense. So I, I don't know what happens with Trump sort of definitely not, not being president. I don't think he's going away. And I don't think that the, the groundswell that, that created and lifted him up as their, as their figurehead is going away. I do know that there's plenty of um, disillusionment and tears and, you know, just complete confusion and devastation happening amongst the QAnon people and the MAGA people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm glad that you brought up J.P. Sears because I think watching him will be a little bit of a bellwether for um, how various conspirituality demographics orient themselves around the new reality of the Biden presidency. So, you know, everybody was kind of amazed to mm-hmm. see him post a, uh, an Instagram portrait of a smiling Biden and to seem to congratulate him and to say, and to say, well, you know, uh, here we go. Uh, he's my president too. And on we, let's get on with it. This is after like nine months of trolling Democrats and, um, and, and, uh, COVID denialism. And of course, you know, he knows that Biden's first 
seventeen executive orders relate to the to the pandemic. Um, and so, you, you know, this we were asked by people on social media, like, "Well, what do you make of this? Uh, is this a change of heart? Is it a rapprochement or something like that?" And I think, uh, from my perspective, the answer is that um, the 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 grift will outlast the uh, figurehead that um, Trump allowed for a certain amount of sort of engagement value to be placed in this anti-authoritarian, you know, um, pseudoscientific, uh, you know, sovereignty mindset. Uh, and I think people like JP realize that, that uh, Biden isn't going to interrupt that that much, actually. Uh, he, doesn't, he, didn't, he didn't need Trump to win. Uh, what 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 he needs is for what he needs is for his you know particular brand of anti-authoritarianism to still have well, something to push against, right? What's well, really interesting that that you use that term twice, anti-authoritarianism, right? Because this, there's this whole topsy-turvy reality that we've been witnessing, right? Mm-hmm. Where right. where the push towards authoritarianism is being driven by a lot of people who are saying if 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 Biden gets in it's going to be a, it's going to be a you know a, a, a communist regime or something and and then we're going to have all of this that that somehow quarantine and vaccines and things like this are an imposition of fascist loss of civil liberties when really all of right. that was trying to, to trying to get Trump either either to win or to uh to actually steal the election whilst you know spreading all this propaganda that it had been stolen from him it's it's such yeah, a- it's it's I mean, what we really have is it's less of an argument and just two recitations of two different sets of facts almost mm-hmm. where and I find the authoritarian one interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I think there seems to be a conflation, a confusion between the notions of socialism and communism and authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I I've given up on trying to fact check that that one. But right. But that that on one side. You know, I think you have folks that are operating in their right mind that are kind of looking, you know, towards Trump and even the notion of martial law and and, um, and overturning, you know, fair elections and military tribunals and you know and yeah. and public executions. I mean, to me, that's what authoritarianism yeah. is. But then, you know. Just as much on the other side, you've got people pointing at this idea of mask mandates and pass pe- vaccine passports and all this kind of stuff as, you know, government overreach and authoritarianism on the left. So, you know, it, it is uh, as if uh, that stuff comes from the left. Right. And it doesn't. It comes from public yeah. health officials. And as if as if what you call the left in America has any shred of actual socialism about it. These are these are centrist, yeah. corporate, hawkish. You right. know, they would, they would, yeah, be, they no, would yeah. be a center-right party in any in any other democracy in the world. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, certainly there's no nationalization of, of <laughs> banks or collective ownership of farms in, in, no. in Biden's first hundred days. Yeah, um, or socialized yeah. medicine or services for homeless people, for fuck's sake. <laughs> right. Um, I think what you brought up about J.P. Sears was interesting, and I also noted that his post of, of contrition. Um, I'm sure you saw Ron Watkins post i think i'm not sure if it was on telegram or where it was but it, it subsequently kind of you know made its way around the internet and i'll just read part of it because i think it it addresses something that i want to get to as it pertains to community and so let me i'll just kind of pull it up uh, he said we gave it our all 
Now we need to keep our chins up and go back to our lives as best as we are able. We have a new president sworn in, and it is our responsibility as citizens to respect the Constitution, regardless of whether or not we agree with the specifics or details regarding officials who are sworn in. And here's the part that I want to focus on. As we enter into the next administration, please remember all the friends and happy memories we made together <laughs> over the past few years. So I, so this is really what it, it really cuts to something here for me, because it really does, and you, yeah. And you guys have pointed it out articulately many times. Is really one part of the ground conditions for what became this movement was the absence of community, the sort of thirst that people have for human connection. And in the absence of that connection, either when you're just living completely digitally or you're quarantined or sheltered in place and people don't have community to support and kind of honestly moderate their views, it's way easier to go into these kind of extreme rabbit holes. And so I, I wonder if one of the solutions that you advocate or when I search for like, what can we do to support people coming out of the other side of this? What role does essentially friends and community play in that? Well, you're absolutely right that, um, I mean, Ron's incredible, like, sociopathic level hypocrisy in in that statement and also his continued appeal to you know this essential pillar of what the conspiracy theory paradigm offers people which is socialization um it really does in an ironic sense point to to this this vacuum uh that we all have to face and um yeah, like uh, from a cult recovery perspective, uh, I've mentioned it a little bit before, but um, you know, the 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 person who is now having to exit or to find some kind of off ramp from this dead end um, fever dream online, um, they're not going to get very far unless there's uh, somebody holding the door open for them. They're not going to get very far unless somebody who remembers them from their old workplace or high school or, you know, what they were like playing football in college or something like that. They're not going to have anywhere to land unless somebody remembers who they were. And um, so friendship is um, essential, I think, for those who can maintain it. Uh, and the problem is, of course, that, you know, as the QAnons on Telegram on January 20th themselves were saying, uh, with their weeping emojis, you know, my friends have all disowned me and I've pissed mm -hmm. off my family. I have nobody anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, that, that, that might be true, but hopefully, hopefully everybody uh, who is around somebody who uh, fell so low can, can, can reach out a hand. Uh, is that what totally you saw? Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you because yeah. I don't spend time on Telegram. Is that what you saw? Did you witness, you witnessed yeah. a, a good amount of that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the 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 countdown. It was actually amazing because because the um, 
the countdown from I anyway I don't I I didn't watch it directly, but I but the but the accounts that I follow would would post you know here's what's happening on Telegram screenshot 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 uh, Telegrams like I I'm still a little bit of a novice to navigating those spaces, so it's hard to find the things that I I want to be looking at. But yeah, um, but if you have uh, Argentino and Fields it, and exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, so, um, yeah, you could watch sort of down to the minute, like, oh, well, Kamala Harris is taking her oath now. What does that mean? Does that mean that Pence is going to, you know, leap up and, you know, rip off his Spider-Man costume or whatever. And then, you know, and then the next, in the next few minutes, this, this next thing happens and what's John Roberts going to say, or did he really say the vow right? Or, uh, and so, so it was minute by minute, um, uh, people ticking down and you could sort of see them falling away. Like, um, I don't know, uh, people, you know, collapsing at the end of a marathon or something like that in different places. Uh, and you know, when they, when the collapse comes, it's, it's, oh my God, I've been had what's nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. I've been an idiot. This, this is all lies. Is all what bullshit. am I doing? what am i doing here and and it's so it's so distressing because they are saying it to people who are not only sharing that experience but who can't really comfort them uh they're sharing it with with a bunch of people that they formed uh deceitful and unstable relationships with that were not based on mutual aid but that were that were based upon the resolution of cognitive dissonance or the resolution of or the the soothing of sunken costs so tell me why. Tell me why you said deceitful. Uh, well, because because the, the because the whole thing was a scam. I mean, because they were lied to about mm. you know this the plan the the mm. uh, what was what was what was coming and so. But if they're I, true, if they're like, true believers bonding with each other, are they being deceitful with each other? I mean, I guess that's such a it's that's almost like a an ontological question. Like, like uh, <laughs> I know but, you hate those. I love them. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's. I think I think if it's if what is but what is it based on? It's kind of like in a cult. How yeah. people, how how can people be friends with each other really? Uh, mm-hmm. Because there are fundamental lies that are actually accounting for why they're they're even standing next to each other. And so I agree with lies, you. But do they know that they're lies? Well, when they do know that they're lies, then they turn yes. to the, they turn to their partner. And they say, "Who okay. the fuck are you?" And okay. and 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 they may get a smile in response. Now, you and and I think Julian, you can probably yeah. identify with you know having spent time in high demand groups and realizing that because people get delusioned at different times, mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult to find mutual support within that environment. It really takes outside support. Totally. I mean, one of the things that, you know, one of the one of the cardinal rules of the cult is that you have to actually be isolated from each other while you're in it, because there are certain things that you're not allowed to disclose or say. You're not allowed to express doubt, right, about the plan. And if you do, you're kicked off, you're banned from the Facebook thread, or, you know, you're in the doghouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so you learn to follow the plan, which includes not expressing any doubt, which means that you can't be having stable and secure relationships. Uh, and that means that there's no comfort available to you when it all crashes. Yes. Yes. Well, the said, comfort, well the said. Comfort, the comfort has to come from outside uh, and it has to come from the cult can never offer a secure relationship. So, so you might feel like you have comradeship, mm-hmm. uh, but what is it really based on? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, there's it's so compartmentalized and 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 your authentic process around, you know, doubts you may have or issues that may come up or or have to be kept out of the real conversation. So there isn't actual intimacy is what I'm hearing that's you say. That's right. That, that's that's right. I mean, and so and so you can really feel I felt I felt in the cults that I was in that I loved there was a cut I can I can think yes. of of three or four people in my in my brain right now that I loved with all of my heart as 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 closely as any friend I could ever have loved. I do not speak to any of them to this mm-hmm. day. And, and within three weeks of leaving, I couldn't speak to them because, mm-hmm. because whatever intimacy we, we shared was predicated upon a lie that fell apart for us at different times. Yeah. And so yeah. we can, the cult can manufacture that closeness it can it can create a toxic mimic of that closeness, but it's not going to fulfill it. It can't. Yeah, yeah. And you've bonded over something that is that is untrue. What strikes me as, as interesting, if I can just add this, is that you know on, on the sixth you have this climactic moment that is active and participatory and engaging, like bleeding over into the real world. On the twentieth, you have this. Yeah. No, no, wait, just watch. Trust the plan. We'll sit back and watch and enjoy the show. Was a, was one of the hashtags, right? And right. so that's a completely different kind of falling apart, where it's just like, oh, not none of this happened, right? The 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 room wasn't sealed off, and Biden arrested, and and Trump brought back in, back in as president. It's just all sort of anticlimactic devastation right not with a bang but a whimper and that's partly because none of them could go to dc right (laughs) because there's twenty thousand national guardsmen sealing off the streets yeah 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 so for the rest of us what does the construction crew look like in terms of building those stable off-ramps so what roles can we well, play? I, I wanted to say something here. I, I know, Matthew, I'm sure you, you have more thoughts about it from a learned perspective because this is your field. I just wanted to say I know someone, I'm actually quite close to someone who is a, a, a wonderful human being in all other respects, but has been somewhat radicalized into some of this stuff, not fully born into Q, but you know, gone, gone and far enough down that road um, and has friends who are, who are, you know, very, very actively involved in that world. And I found myself a couple times this week, we have, we, we just stay away from talking about politics at this point. I used to try and get through to them and I don't anymore, but I found myself a couple times this week. This just sort of came out of me organically in moments um, when we're in the house together saying, just sharing stories about my past, sharing about, wow, you know, I was, I was just thinking about this experience I had where I went to the seminar and it was, it was brainwashing and, and it sucked me in and I was telling everyone around me that they had to do it. And a couple of weeks later, after I'd had some good talks with some friends, I realized I'd been manipulated and I was so angry, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but and it, it wasn't manipulative or, or, or premeditated. It was just sort of happening. And, and I was reflecting on that. I actually had a couple different stories like that. And this person was going, wow. Yeah. That that's, that's so wild that that could have happened to you. Yeah, I guess I guess I was vulnerable to it. So I don't know. I, I the next day I was thinking about that and going, I wonder if that's one of the ways that I'm finding to build a bridge with them is to just share that I've I've gotten into things that I don't believe anymore that turned out to be false or right. or a scam or a con or kind of cultish and mm-hmm. and you know 
I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Like, here we are. Yeah, it seems like story is important. Maybe, and, and, maybe. And facilitating people uh, to be able to see their own story in yours in a, mm-hmm. in a vulnerable way. But Matthew, what, what were we going to say there? Well, I, I mean, the the sort of these these dyads that can have really um, wonderful outcomes uh, are totally necessary and they're going to be part of everybody's life. We're going to, we're going to have conversations and, you know, some are going to go well and some are going to go not so well. Um, But I think for those of us in media spaces, um, there are other categories of activity as well. And, you know, we're not always going to have the opportunity to, to, you know, have lots of personal conversations, but then, you know, here we show up on a podcast and, and we hold a certain amount of media power. And so I, you know, think the lot of us have got to start talking about um, what does, what does digital hygiene mean? Um, and, and what assumptions have we made about social media being able to form community that have led us into a place in which we accept um, just rank disinformation on our feeds that ends up negatively impacting and perhaps even physically killing people. Um, so we just, for instance, on our, on our, uh, website, we released a, a feedback policy, um, that, you know, dealt with, it, it lays out what, what, how we're going to respond to, uh, people who use our social media feeds to harass or to troll or to express racism or ableism or anti-trans rhetoric or things like that. But then what's cool about the, I mean, not cool, but this, there's a tablespoon of lemonade <laughs> in the pandemic, which is that, which is that it's made it super, super clear to, I think all of us that, uh, if we allow people to spread disinformation about COVID, or about masks, or about the PCR test, or about vaccines, that uh, we are putting money into the pocket of the social media company by increasing um, uh, cantankerous debate in yet another space, uh, and also, and also, we're we're um, we're exposing people to uh, really harmful data, uh, and so um, it, you know, b- becoming tougher about that. Uh, and a little bit more clear that uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram offered us this kind of like toxic mimicry of of community, but that's not what that is. And so we're going to have to create real world communities in which we actually do have, um, you know, uh, perhaps more diverse and 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 vigorous debates because debating on social media actually generally favors disinformation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that's the other, all of the personal stuff is going to take forever, right? Like how many people are you going to have conversations with? It's never going to end. But sure. then in professional terms, in professional terms, there are these sort of, I don't know, key questions that we have to ask about, um, you know, how do we create better media uh, and how do we protect media from disinformation? Yeah, I I believe that the kind of reinstantiation of real public discourse mm-hmm. will help. Um, and I think, you know, the tricky part is, is how do you create 
platforms that facilitate that. Yeah. Um, interesting. Last week, um, I launched a, a platform called Make America Purple, and it's a the, the simplest platform of all time. Really, just because I wanted not to have to put a tremendous amount of operational shoulder into it. So all it really does is it um, is it connects people who identify as conservative with people that identify as liberal. You just enter your email in one field or another, and it automatically right. connects people in email with a series of, of you know, rules of engagement and, and some guidelines around nonviolent communication, et cetera. And in the first week, I mean, we haven't really gotten our shoulder massively into it, but we've got about 2,000 people on the liberal side that yeah. have entered. And it's, unfortunately, it's about six to one, you know, liberal to conservative in terms of, you know, people signing up for the <laughs> right. conversations. But, but we've had thus far, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 or 85 people that have actually consummated their first conversation. And, you know, that's not a scaled number, but it, at least it's a, you know, it's some step of an, instead of sort of an all caps, you know, vitriolic screaming match happening on Facebook, you have people really engaging in 20 to 30 minute phone calls or Zooms where, you know, it's just so much easier to recognize someone else's common humanity and shared story. Yeah. And it's just hard. It's just hard to hate up close. And I, I don't know if there's an analogy there um, between right and left versus, you know, folks that are just kind of surfacing out of QAnon. So I got to imagine that real conversation um, has got to be have some you know utility in the. Well, I have I have my sort of typical point of view on on this stuff that I know both you guys are familiar with, which is I I feel like elevating public discourse, educating people, finding finding good ways to talk about certain psychological concepts, to talk about you know, for example, I did a post this week just to see what would happen. Uh, about disillusionment, or as Matthew called it in, in the podcast, disenchantment, which is which is another angle, I think, on that concept, inviting people and saying, hey, I, I did a video and I said, as we watch all these QAnon people kind of fall into the abyss of, of disillusionment or disenchantment, depending on how you want to look at it, um, I think it's really interesting to reflect on how perhaps so much of our growth and so much of our healing and transformation and learning through different stages of life happens through some kind of disillusionment. Uh, do you have a story like that that you want to share? And the response was actually quite significant. A lot of different people, and these are people who follow us, but shared you know, really harrowing stories of how they had had to grapple with fi figuring out that something was not true or that they'd been betrayed or been lied to in some way, that they had to sort of reinvent their worldview. And I, I feel like there's a, especially in, on our side of the street, right, in the wellness subculture, to keep introducing more grounded, more psychologically integrated, and of course, more scientifically literate, more rational ways of thinking about the world and about how, how, how that can sort of uh, dovetail with awareness practices, I, that's never seemed more crucial to me in terms of... Uh, you know, helping helping to protect people from getting sucked into those kinds of uh, bad bad uh, narratives, bad ideas. I really like the phone call generator. That sounds really great, Jeff. So kudos on that. Right. That that's really cool. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, maybe if it's so simple, the yeah. tech build was so simple. So if there is an application that you guys might want to utilize, we can we can discuss that. It's amazing. Um, I mean, it makes me think of how uh, I'm very fortunate to be kind of steering my my freelance journalism in ways that uh, allow me to reach across the aisle in the way that I haven't before. So, you know, for um, the QAnon in Canada piece that I published for The Walrus, I was able to, um, you know, have several phone conversations with a guy who moderated a QAnon Facebook account or the biggest one in Canada. Uh, and there's, uh, an upcoming feature that I'm going to do on, uh, disaster spirituality across Canada during the pandemic where, um, I'm interviewing a, um, uh, what would he call himself? I suppose, uh, a reformed Mennonite leader here in, uh, Southwestern Ontario who runs a small congregation in traditional dress, about 300 people or so. And, uh, for purposes of religious freedom, they've aligned themselves with anti-lockdown pro- protests here. Um, and so I'm talking to the other side. Um, mm. And then I'm also looking for people who um, uh, have been on the other side uh, and and can speak to um, the other side in a humanizing way. So I just was able to interview a guy named Matthew Sheffield, uh, who used to be a conservative blogger, uh, and uh, now has, um, you know, I guess become a culture trader and a and a um, uh, an analyst of conservative culture for progressive causes. And you know, I was amazing to speak to him for an hour and to and to sort of just learn some basic things about American conservatism that I didn't understand before. The number one thing was. Um, I said, you know, the article was about parlor and I said, so what do you think it's going to feel like for the average parlor loser to have had their platform just, you know, ripped away from them in 24 hours and for them to be hanging there in, in midair? Uh, and he said, well, you know, they'll use Telegram and email and text messaging and WhatsApp. They'll keep connected somehow, but it'll probably feed into the general cultural narrative of having something taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and, you know, that's the motivating, um, that's one of the motivating, uh, you know, narratives of the entire conservative movement is uh, of losing, uh, losing um, social status, losing economic, uh, um, you know, patterns of, of, of prosperity. But then he said, but then he said, and losing children and grandchildren in the sense that they don't go to church anymore. Mm. And then he said, and that's why the QAnon movement to me is so interesting is that, you know, uh, MAGA conservatives and evangelicals, a lot of them are going to be sitting at home and they'll look at Jake Angeli on the, on the rostrum of the Senate and they don't know who the fuck that guy yeah. is. Yeah. He's right. the kid. He's the kid who stopped going to church. And so they're even within the conservative movement, even within the pro-Trump movement, there's a feeling of loss of control uh, or a feeling of internal chaos. And so anyway, just talking to this guy blew my mind and it made me realize, oh, I just don't know anything. I actually, I know very little about what it's like to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to be embodied uh, as, as somebody, somebody who is conservative. Well, and I just want to throw in there too. I, I think there's plenty of actual conservative voices who would say Trump and Trumpism is not conservative. 
Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. You know, I also, it's like, um, I, I want to stay away from, um, uh, I, I also want to, I also want to reach across the aisle to people who are reformers of, um, culture on the left too. And that's why we, uh, on our podcast, we invited Clementine Morgan and, and Jay, uh, to come on and talk about their work, uh, their activism against uh, cancel culture in progressive spaces. Uh, and of course, it's a very controversial topic, and it's not like we got to the bottom of it, and they get accused of all kinds of things, including, you know, um, blowing off the, the, the real power of, of, of call-out or cancel culture to, to, um, to promote accountability. But yeah. um, but at the same time, at the same time, they have some amazing things to say about how um, progressive spaces can be uh, just as culty as any other, uh, and and so I I want to I really want to keep looking for the for the people who can name that stuff for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's actually a, a a bullet point that I had here that I, I think I'll just save for another conversation. Um, because I think it warrants it, but um, is there, you know, a cult of wokeness? Um, and, and certainly, you know, I've been having uh, many conversations as I was modeling um, this Make America Purple idea. Uh, I've had about a dozen conversations with conservatives. Now, not uh, alt-right conservatives, actually quite sane, moderate mm-hmm. conservatives that believe in uh, some more of this sort of typical ster- or stereotypical conservative ideologies around secure borders and law and order and sound fiscal policy, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a very safe person for them to have that conversation with because I'm, you know, a, a relatively independently minded, let's face it, white male. So I think that, that, I've been able to navigate those conversations and it is mm. absolutely enlightening and eye-opening. And I think this is really a topic for a further conversation, but, you know, I'll tell you as we point, you know, our finger towards, mm-hmm. you know, cults, and I don't think there's any sort of mm-hmm. moral equivalency here, but they're also pointing sure. their finger to, you know, the cult of wokeness of essentially that they're here they are being called racist for not for any reprehensible act that they've engaged it, but just because of their own politics and in, in uh, some essential nature. Right. Yeah. And so there is a lot to, to unpack there, but I, I, again, I think that's probably yeah, the, yeah another thing. I, I imagine Jeff that you're familiar with uh, Jonathan Haidt's work. Yeah. I think I think that Jonathan Haidt has a has a fantastic model, a fantastic body of research for you know your project certainly, and you're probably already applying some of that stuff. But in terms of you know his his whole recognition that in terms of moral psychology, liberals and conservatives tend to value different things, and if you can understand what the other side values and how to talk about that in a in a in an empathic and respectful way that that that's sort of a, a good starting point in terms of those conversations i think uh you I know think, that, that I think, go, ahead, go ahead 
Yeah, I I was just going to say that um, one thing that stays with me from my, you know, cultic studies that is always really close is that um, the content isn't the thing. The content Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter. The the cult's content is its excuse for its abuse. Um, And so... Uh, the the tactics deployed by uh, the cultic organization, whether it's Trumpian or it's QAnon or it's you know ecofascism or it's um, you know on the progressive left, um, it, it it the 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 dynamics are the same, the behaviors are the same, the power differentials are the same, and the the the, the pyramid of of power and control is is the same. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, am a big fan of being able to identify, uh, the behaviors that are, you know, uh, suppressive or abusive or, mm-hmm. um, or contagiously accuse, uh, you know, growing numbers of people of, 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 you know, this or that incorrect thought. So, so yeah. Um, yeah. it doesn't really matter. Either the cultic dynamics can be identified regardless of the group. And, and I would say, you know, just in, as a, in, I know we'll, we'll talk about this in more depth, perhaps another time, but as a very short answer that came to mind right away, is there a, a cult of wokeness? Well, I would say yes. And so much so that I'm scared to even say yes. <laughs> exactly. Because it's dangerous. Yeah. Because there is, there is, is a, there is a, a, a kind of menacing uh, insistence on a certain way of, of, of even talking about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if, if you don't subscribe to the orthodoxy, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, you run the risk of, of, of being canceled, you know, mm-hmm. if, if a tweet doesn't age well or, or if, you know, there's a... a a well-intentioned, you know, slip of the tongue, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I think that this is a, a, you know, what we're kind of battling is fundamentalism Mm -hmm. on one side and and kind of the illiberalism of the left on on the other side. And, you know, uh, we're trying to kind of find ethical and moral structures by which to live our lives somewhere between (laughs) fundamentalism and moral moral relativism. Uh, Sure. and, And this is a big challenge. I wonder too about democracy. You know, I wonder. I wonder if within democracies, as imperfect, of course, and as much work as needs to be done to keep moving America in the right direction. But I wonder too if there's a level of boredom that happens with a relatively stable society over a long enough time, where politics politics becomes this kind of bureaucratic, you know, out of reach, like symbolic thing that people don't really feel like they're participating in, and at a certain point that becomes boring and populism kind of rises again where, where I'm going to come in and I'm going to change everything and I'm going to be a, a man of the people who will get rid of all of the corruption. And, you know, that, that whole sort of, it seems to feed something that, that the, the, the collective human psyche has some kind of longing for. So I'm really curious about how to, how to keep countering that in a way and keep, keep giving people models to think about how they can participate in the power structure that don't have to go in the direction of populism and cultism and, you know, rabid ideological uh, in-group adherence identification. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot that Hannah Arendt, mm-hmm. you know, writes about this. And of course she's looking at, at totalitarianism in, yeah. 
in Germany, but, you know, she really talks a lot about the disintegration of one's sort of political life and not political in the sense of conservative or Republican, but the idea of one's um, involvement in ideas and the free exchange of ideas between individuals in, in the public square. It's sort of the erosion of sort of John Stuart Mill of a marketplace of ideas. And we just sort of then kind of our lives become sort of reduced to, to sort of the maintaining of our own biochemistry at night and in the morning and just, you know, economic man during the day. And, and, and that becomes a a very unfulfilling way to live one's life. Can I just point out uh, just to add something to the discussion of whether or not there's, there's, there's a, there's a cult of wokeness. I, maybe I can ask Julian um, when you, when you say that you're, scared to admit that you think there is because it feels dangerous to say where are you actually endangered like um are you endangered in your life in los angeles or are you endangered in your life online (laughs) i think i'm endangered in my life online but i think that if i think that there's a certain amount of nuance that i would want to bring to certain topics and nuance gets interpreted as nazi Nuance gets interpreted as well. You, well, that you're therefore on completely on the other side if you if you think that this topic deserves to right. be sort of teased apart and, and unpacked a little bit. And then, but hold on, and then that the reality of that online leads to consequences that will affect my real life in terms of being slandered, yes. in terms of potentially right, losing right. work and losing money. In terms of being right. seen as the enemy by a group of people that actually I, I have a ninety eight percent shared worldview with, but now but it's now that's right. gone because I dared to say, well, you know, maybe. Yeah. I guess I guess I I have this metaphor in my head that I got from Matt Christman on uh, Chapo Trap House, where he was describing how um, what social media does to us is that you know in normal politics. Uh, you would organize people and you would build something. And it's kind of like building a ship, building a boat. Uh, And you learn how to do it as you go. And you have an objective and you're going to launch the boat and you want to sail the boat and hope it doesn't leak. And you're going to sail the boat to a particular location. And he said, um, what's amazing about social media is that you can feel like you're building a politics uh, by building a boat and you spend all of this time building the boat and then you step back and you realize that the boat is in a fucking bottle and it's not going to go anywhere. And, and, and so what my question is that like, I I just want to contextualize the, the, the difficulty around, uh, you know, woke culture, whatever it is, and it impacts people in different ways as being a product of social media exacerbation of already marginalized communities usually uh, committing horizontal violence because it's easier than actually punching up and doing fucking organizing. And so um, I, I just I just want to not leave listeners with the impression that somehow there's 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 a big bad um, progressive world out there that mm. uh, is is you know going to tear us all to shreds. I don't think that's the case at all. It's more like it's more like uh, surveillance capitalism and social media has put, progressives in a space in which they naturally feel as though 
they can gain power through horizontal violence, through attacking each other instead of uh, uh, being out and knocking on doors, which is where the real action happens. It's, it's not the boat in the bottle. Hmm. Well, I, let's cubbyhole this particular discussion mm-hmm. because I think the most constructive way to have this one, and I really do want to have it, and I'm having it in many, many, many private conversations yeah. um, with people all across the spectrum with, with, you know, some of my black activist friends and people on the Republican side and just everywhere in between. Um, and, and I think it's it, the more we can have these honest conversations and, and not honestly walk on eggshells, the more we will be able to bring our society forward. So let's, let's make that a project um, and, and pin it for a second. You know, I want to just end with more of a personal question for you guys, um, which centers around really the work that you guys have done for, I guess, the last eight or nine months. I'm not exactly sure when Conspirituality uh, launched, but it feels like around that amount of time. It feels like years. It feels like nine months. (laughs) Nine months. And um, did you have any idea when you started that the topic and I suppose uh, the associated movement connected to the topic would be such a prescient conversation. I mean, it's really just the headline in almost, you know, every major media publication. And so that's question number one. And I guess number two, you know, Along with that, I mean, what degree of responsibility do you now feel, mm-hmm. um, you know, moving forward that it has become such a major salient issue in our political and cultural landscape? I mean, I certainly had had uh, no idea that it would get to this point. I thought we were covering something fairly niche that had potential to go to some dangerous places, but I wouldn't have predicted quite where we're at with with it now in terms of the the topic of QAnon and conspiracy theories and everything that's that's happened just in the last in the last month or two. Um, I I think that for me, there's a sense of responsibility around just continuing to uh, to educate people. And to 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 keep digging and keep researching and keep having these these conversations and being I feel I'm very proud of the work that we've done together. And I feel that there's a body of work there that that people can dig into and, and people reach out to us all the time and say, you know, I just found you guys. I'm I'm binge listening to everything. It's helping so much. And that that's very gratifying to know that we can be useful in that way. And I think there's there's still plenty of people who are probably just sort of waking up to this and going, how do I understand this phenomenon? So, you know, there there's a responsibility there, but it's also it's it's just what we're doing. I think for myself, I am surprised uh, and a little bit gratified that uh, so much of our prior critical work has found a place in terms of its explanatory power. Uh, or you know its analytical 
I don't know, juice with regard to, um, you know, we've been we've been pretty clear about the nature of wellness culture and its economics and its depoliticization and um, its magical thinking for you know the three of us for the last ten years, and so in some ways we're we're playing with a series of escalated and coalescing themes. Um, and I, in terms of responsibility, um, you know, we just passed 10,000, uh, followers on Instagram. Uh, I think we're pulling in 3,300 or $3,400 a month U S on Patreon. Um, we have, um, you know, in, in, I, th- I think each podcast we drop, we get to about 6,000 downloads in the first 24 hours. This is still pretty small in terms yeah. of scale, but we, you know, we're getting to the place where we can say we have professionalized this. And at well, that what's point, interesting too, though, yeah. Matthew, just about, about those stats is that just, to, just, to, I just wanted to echo what I was saying before is that around 6,000 listens in the first 24 hours to a new episode, but each week we're getting 30, 35,000 listens because people are digging through our back catalog. Right. 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 And, and I would say that as we trip over this line into professionalization, we have to be super careful uh, about uh, monetizing this idea uh, and not uh, doing exactly what we criticize influencer culture for which is yeah. to, um, uh, which is to dig into uh, controversy for its own sake. I think we have to make really, really good close, really good choices about who we criticize. Make sure that we are never uh, punching down. I think that we are just three guys with uh, some skills that are limited. And I think that as our reach increases, our quality has to increase as well. Uh, and that means making sure that our, our diversity and inclusion game is super tight. Uh, and that it also means that we have to always be looking out for like, who has the best information on X, you know, uh, and, and we have to make sure that they're the guests because we can't just keep reporting on the dumb shit that so and so said last week. Uh, that doesn't. That's not going to go anywhere. And I think that's the hole that um, the QAA guys find themselves in. Right? Is that they're monetized to what fifty or sixty thousand dollars a month or something like that? Uh, and and that they've done really well and they're super entertaining and they've got a lot of data. And it's like they have sort of just played observation as well. Uh, it's it's not like, I remember Julian Field sent out a tweet like three months ago, four months ago saying, we want somebody who's like a cult recovery expert to come on the show. Who can that be? And then I don't think they ever got somebody like that. Uh, wow. And so, and so I'm like, so what are you going to do? Like, like, how are you going to, how, how, where's that? What's the end game there? And what's the off ramp for you? Right. Like at what point did um, I love what they do? I think they've done an amazing job. But at what point does the um, does does the analysis of QAnon become its own grift? That's a really important like issue to look at. And I think I think we've got to take care with it. Yeah, well, I really look forward to watching the evolution of what you guys do. And I think you're right. I mean, if we're going to be. publicly 
talking about media literacy and digital hygiene and and uh, you know the importance of expertise in our culture then we actually need to walk that walk totally. and get right. the experts on our platforms and um so I say that but I, I will say in the terms of the work that you guys have done so far um you know i i admire it in many uh, of its aspects and effects but i really revere your commitment to being rigorous and thorough. And I say that as a fellow creator of media, because I know how much work that actually takes and how, <laughs> how, how much easier it would be just to be a little bit lazy and spend time with my kids or go have a beer or whatever other things that I like to do that are fun in my life. Um, but that, you know, that your commitment to actually being thorough, doing the research, thinking things through, articulating things clearly and succinctly, but with but never sacrificing uh, uh, depth for speed. Um, I, I really do appreciate that. So thank you guys for the, the work that. Well, thank that you're you, doing. Jeff. That, that means a lot coming from you. That That's means a lot. Fine. Thank you. All right. Well, another fantastic conversation. Um, I, I can only imagine we've just started to excavate many of these issues. And um, thank you guys again for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to The Commune Podcast. If you're interested in following Matthew's or Julian's work, please subscribe to The Conspirituality Podcast on your favorite podcatcher. And you're always welcome to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every single email. That's all from The Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.